So if you were going to make a list of uh, like the top 10 stories in the Bible that are most famous and most well-known, what would you include on that list? Probably uh, this morning's story would be on that list, I would guess, for most people. In fact, uh, this week I was kind of thinking like, is this just something that people in the church know or is this a well-known story even in like non-Christian circles? And so uh, I was looking online, found this website called thetop10s.com. And uh, now this website claims to have 198,000 top 10 lists on it. So if you've got a little bit of time, it's got some time to waste for you. Uh, don't check it during the sermon, please. But uh, if you're looking for a list of like the greatest athletes of all time or the best movies or the best WWE wrestlers of all time, there is a list there for you. Um, but they also have a list of the top 10 most famous Bible stories. The number one story on that list is the crucifixion of Jesus. And I was kind of happy to see that there, that of all the stories in the Bible, that that would be the one that's most well known. Number two was David and Goliath. Uh, number three was the birth of Jesus, so the Christmas story. Number four, this one kind of surprised me, Jonah and the whale was number four on the list. And uh, number five, Adam and Eve, I guess the fall of man. And then right there at number six is a story we're going to look at this morning, Daniel in the lion's den. This is a popular story, whether you grew up in the church or not, people seem to know it. Um, but what makes this story resonate with people so much? What's, what's so interesting about it? One thing, or two things that I think that resonate with people, or at least it resonates with me, is that it teaches us two things. One, it teaches us how to live faithfully in an antagonistic age. That's the name of our uh, of our series on the book of Daniel, living faithfully in an antagonistic age. But it also shows us that God is always faithful. And uh, we'll see that in the story, that God is always faithful. And so my hope this morning is that message will encourage you in your faith, but it also, and will give you some practical application points for how to live faithfully in this antagonistic age that we find ourselves in, but that it would also give you hope that we serve a faithful God. So let's look at, look at the story here. Um, as Pastor John's mentioned in, in the series before this, this, this book of Daniel was written not just in Hebrew, like most of the Old Testament, but Hebrew and Aramaic. And uh, you see in the slide there that uh, chapter 1 was written in Hebrew as the introduction to the book. But then chapters 2 through 7 were written in Aramaic. And Aramaic was just like the common language of the day. And then, and as, the, as Daniel finishes chapters 8 to 12, it goes back to Hebrew. And uh, I'm not sure exactly why it, it, it is that way, uh, but it seems to kind of point to the fact that we are living in this tension between two worlds, God, God's world, but also the world that we find ourselves in that seems to be antagonistic towards God. And the Aramaic language in there has the language of the day that is teaching us God's principles. Chapters 2 through 7, though, also have this interesting pattern to them, and it's called a, a chiastic arrangement or um, a chiasm. This is often found in the Psalms, in the poetry, where different parts will match with one another uh, throughout, the, throughout the book. And so you'll see chapter 2 and chapter 7, which Pastor John will get to in a couple weeks, there's a vision of the four kingdoms. So in chapter 2, you remember there's the statue with the, f the four parts to it, and then in chapter 7, there'll be a story about a dream concerning four beasts representing the four kingdoms. Chapters 3 and 6 
seem to have obvious connections to one another. The story of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and then also Daniel finding himself in the lion's den. These martyr stories, although near them end, ended up actually dying. And then chapters 4 and 5, the ones we've looked at in the last couple weeks, Nebuchadnezzar's pride as well as Belshazzar's pride. So the humiliation of two pagan kings and their responses. So as we know, Nebuchadnezzar responded um, to his humiliation well and, and, and eventually gave praise to God. But then Belshazzar, it led, his humiliation led to his ultimate uh, peril and he, and he dies at the end. Of, uh, of chapter 5. So there's these connections here, and you'll see them as I go through this story, that there's a lot of connections between the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, his, in the fiery furnace, and then this one this morning. And often writers do this because they're trying to highlight certain things. So the th- key themes, right? We see God's providence uh, in, the, in the four kingdoms. We see God's protection in chapters 3 and 6, and then we also see God's sovereignty over human authorities. And so these, the book of Daniel is not just slapped together haphazardly. Um, there's intention with every single part of this book. And so let's, let's dive right into the story. We see at the end of chapter 5 that Belshazzar is assassinated, and it leads to um, the enthronement of Darius the Mede. Now this is the first time we hear about Darius. Um, so who is this guy? Some actually argue that he is the same as Cyrus the Persian. Cyrus is the one that's found um, in uh, Second Chronicles as well as Ezra as the one who gives the edict that the, that the exiles can go back to Jerusalem. So there's an argument that's made that Darius and Cyrus are the same person, just Darius is his Babylonian name. And if you have an NIV, you'll see in, chap- or in verse 28 of chapter 6 that there's a little uh, footnote there that says another way of translating uh, the fact of Darius and Cyrus is that um, Darius, that is the reign of Cyrus. So depending on how it's translated, Darius could be Cyrus. Others suggest that Darius was a military general of Cyrus who ruled in Babylon. But either way, at the end of uh, chapter 5, with the death of Belshazzar, um, it leads to the enthronement of Darius and the transition of power from Babylon to Persia. And so the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy in chapter 2 is beginning to happen as the head of gold kind of falls off with Babylon, and the power is given to uh, the chest and arms of of silver as Persia takes power uh, in the empire. In this political shakeup, we see that Darius, one of the first things he does is he uh, appoints 120 satraps to be over all of his kingdom. These satraps were just political rulers, and their job was basically keep the peace and collect taxes. That's their job. Probably not an easy job, but that was their job to do around the kingdom. Keep the peace, collect taxes for Darius. One of the administrators that these satraps reported to was Daniel. Um, The ESV translates the administrator's president, so it's almost like the kings had three right-hand men to help him oversee the kingdom. Within these three, though, Daniel distinguishes himself above the rest. He does his job well, and it says that he has exceptional qualities— And so these other administrators, they become jealous of Daniel. They hear Daniel's in line for a promotion, and they know if Daniel gets promoted, that means I get demoted. And so, and as well to rub salt in their wounds, this isn't a Babylonian guy. This is is a Jew. This is one of the exiles. This is a foreigner. So they don't like this very much at all. And so they, but they can't find anything wrong with Daniel. And so in verse 5, you see what they do. They come up with a plan. Finally, these men said, 
You'll never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. The only way to get Daniel in trouble is to find a tension between the law of the land and Daniel's faith. Living in a land where your faith is at tension uh, with the law of the land is not easy. But this is where Daniel finds himself. And I think this is why this story is so relevant and interesting to us today, because in many ways this is where we find ourselves, feeling like we're living in exile as Christians in a foreign land. In verses 6 to 8, these guys hatch a plan to get rid of Daniel, targeting the way he practices his faith in God. They propose a law that anyone who prays to anyone other than Darius, they should be thrown into a lion's den. And if you take their word for it, everyone in the land, every, all the leaders think this is a good idea, right? All the satraps, the administrators, the counselors, the governors, they all think this is a great idea. Now, of course, this isn't true because Daniel was one of these administrators, and obviously he wouldn't have signed off on this. But either way, they asked the king to make it official. Sign this document that according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, it won't be able to be changed. We see this law of the Medes and Persians in Esther as well. Just something that cannot be changed even by the king once it's in place. We don't know exactly why Darius agreed to this. Um, he seemed to like Daniel, and he may have, if he thought about it for a second, he would know this is going to conflict with my right-hand man Daniel, his, his way of living. But he signs it anyway. It seems like this move by Darius was probably political and not religious. He's not looking for prayers of his people or to be make, made himself into a god. It's a political move. It makes sense for him. Well, I'm just a new king in town. If I get everyone just to focus on me, if all my administrators and satraps, they're happy about it, well then sure, I'll sign this thing um, into, into existence. And so Darius agrees. And so as the lights go down on scene one in this story, we see there's this rising tension between what's happening and how is Daniel going to respond. In scene two, this is, goes to Daniel's house and he's caught praying in verses 10 and 11. And there's three interesting things I noticed here about Daniel's prayer. The first thing I see is that he chooses to pray despite the threat of death. We can kind of gloss over the fact that Daniel was really facing a horrific death. Like we know the end of the story, right? He gets saved and um, these lions, they didn't, they didn't get him. But actually think about that. Would you be able to forego prayer to your God, um, or would you be able to continue, should I should say, in your prayer to God with the face of this kind of brutal death? This den that they would have thrown him in, uh, it's, this, this den that they would have thrown him in, it, it's in the ground, it's one of these cisterns that would have held water. And uh, once the cistern no longer held water, because they would, in, in the desert, they would try to get water in these places. Once they cracked, they were basically useless. And so, in much like how Joseph got thrown into one of these cisterns in Genesis, Daniel's being thrown into one of these cisterns that no longer holds water, but now it's holding lions, ravenous lions. Knowing the punishment, you may have excused Daniel if he didn't want to continue praying the way he always did in, in his window. Maybe you would have excused him if he just said, you know what, you know, for this month, I'm just going to Pray silent prayers uh, to the Lord. And you would have excused him for that. But no, 
he, he knew the punishment and he continued in the way that he had always prayed. Secondly, he prays toward Jerusalem. Why does he pray toward Jerusalem? Jerusalem's no longer what it once was. It was destroyed. There's no hope coming from Jerusalem, is there? We're not as Christians taught to pray towards somewhere physical. But Daniel knew God's word. Daniel knew there was a promised restoration of Jerusalem. I find this fascinating. Jeremiah was a contemporary of Daniel. So Jeremiah would have been slightly older than Daniel, but they were alive at the same time. According to Daniel chapter 9 verse 2, Daniel had Jeremiah's scrolls. He knew what Jeremiah had written. We don't know if he had all of Jeremiah's writings, but he's had some of them. Jeremiah's writings were likely fulfilled and finished by 550 BC, and this story takes place around 539. So there's about 10 years between the finishing of the book of Jeremiah and this story that we find ourselves in. In Jeremiah 30, verse 3, Perhaps Daniel was reading this promise. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their ancestors to possess, says the Lord. Daniel knew the promise that God had for them. So he's looking to Jerusalem knowing that that place is going to be restored. The God that I serve is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. I have faith in that. His prayers are shaped by the promises of God. And so our prayers should also be shaped by the promises of God. When he's looking to Jerusalem, it's not because that's necessarily any special place for us as Christians. It's because it was connected to a promise that he will, although he's sitting in exile right now, be restored to the land that God had promised. So he prays despite threat of death, and he prays looking toward Jerusalem. And then thirdly, he prays because he had already decided and he'd already chosen to pray. Verse 10 says, Three times a day he got down on his knees and praise, prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. He's not starting a new prayer strategy because he's in desperate need of God's help that he hasn't already had in place before. He was prepared for this. In this case, he's praying and asking God, Help me. I'm in this situation. I need you. We don't know what his, all of his prayers were like. But I think, I'm going to speculate here, I think perhaps Daniel was praying Psalm 55. Or something like it. Psalm 55. In this situation, David, when he's writing, he's in, we don't know exactly the situation, but he's in some difficult situation. Some theologians say it's probably when he was on the run from his son Absalom. And this is what David prays in Psalm 55, 16 to 18. This is what I'm suggesting perhaps Daniel's praying. As for me, I call to God and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, one, two, three, I cry out in distress and he hears my voice. He rescues me unharmed from the battle waged against me, even though many oppose me. Daniel knows the Psalms. Perhaps he's applying David's routine of praying three times a day, evening, morning, and noon. And as we know, God will and does answer his prayer that he calls out. God does rescue him unharmed from the battle waged against him, even though many oppose him, like the prayer says. 
He prays like David in the way that he always prays. He prays despite threat. He prays toward Jerusalem. And he prays because he always prays. And so we see that he, he's praying. And as the scene goes on, the conspirators see this. And they take the news back to the king. In verses 12 to 15. They go as a group, like a bunch of high school students to Darius. They're always, never doing anything on their own. They're always together. They go back to clarify the law, just to make sure it's in place before they let Darius know what happened. The king clarifies the law stands in line with the laws and the Medes and Persians. It can't be changed. So it's in place. They proceed to rat on Daniel. He was found praying, and he has been praying three times a day to his God, not to you, Darius. This distresses the king. In verse 14, you see he finally, Darius is finally seeing these snakes that he has as his administrators for who they really are. These guys didn't care about honoring Darius. They didn't care about Darius. They don't care about the kingdom. They care about themselves. They just want to get rid of Daniel. It says he, that Darius makes every effort before sundown to save Daniel. Because according to their custom, the sentence is supposed to be carried out on the evening on the same day that the accusation is made. But the king's hands are tied. He can't do anything about it. Which leads us to then the fourth scene in this, in this story. That evening near the lion's den in, in verses 16 to 18. He's done all he can to save Daniel, but Darius, he can't. So he says, may your God, whom you faithfully serve, may he deliver you. Darius has no idea if God is going to show up for Daniel. In fact, we don't even know what Daniel was thinking, if he really knew what God was going to do. This is the price of faithfulness to God. We are faithful, we do what we're supposed to do, and we, we leave the results to God. We don't know if he's going to save us. In verses 17 and 18, we see Darius is stirring. He's the one that can't sleep. It's fascinating to think that Daniel in the den of lions probably got a better sleep than Darius did in his palace. But this is the rest and the comfort that God offers his children who are with him and who trust him. People who are anchored in his promises. And so what happens next? Does Daniel make it? Well, we'll find out next week when I come back up here and tell you the rest of the story. <laughs> no, actually, I'll continue. So early morning, verses 19 to 24, God works a miracle. It's interesting to know Darius. He calls Daniel by his Hebrew name. What did the other kings call him? Belteshazzar. His Babylonian name. But Darius calls him, at least in this story, by his Hebrew name. Daniel means God will be my judge. And we see that the meaning of his name comes true in this story. God will be my judge. In God's judgment, Daniel is innocent of the crime that he was put to the lions for. And God rescues Daniel by sending his angel. In the same way that Daniel's friends were rescued three chapters earlier, that not even a hair of their, hair of their heads were singed by the fire, Daniel is rescued and not harmed at all by the lions. And as we see in verse 24, these aren't tame lions. These aren't lions that were already full from another meal. You know, some people that try to downplay this story say, well, you know, people can survive being with lions. You know, if the lions were already well-fed, then they would have maybe just ignored Daniel. 
But uh, we see that they were actually quite hungry because when, <laughs> when the evil conspirators were thrown into the den, they didn't even get to the bottom before they were destroyed in a brutal way. These lions were hungry. And this proves that Daniel didn't just survive the night because the lions weren't hungry. It proves that the lions did not get Daniel because God protected Daniel. So Daniel is saved and the conspirators are dealt with. But one more important sentence remains, which I think offers us an even greater miracle than Daniel being saved from the lions. So back at the palace, verses 25 to 28, what is, how does Darius respond to this? He issues a notice to his whole empire. So his empire would have gone all the way from uh, Egypt and Greece in the west, all the way over to the border of modern-day India in the east. Massive kingdom. And he issues this decree, a pagan king. Verse 25, Then Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language on earth, May you prosper greatly. Before I read the rest, if you, this is very interesting. There's, this is repeated. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 says this exact same thing verbatim. The book of Daniel has a great commission flavor to it. When Nebuchadnezzar writes his letter, he says the same thing. To all the nations, peoples, of every language on earth, may you prosper greatly. What? What, why, what does Darius write to the nations? This is why I think this is a greater miracle. If you woke up this morning and on your phone it said, two amazing things happened last night. One, in the Toronto Zoo, Someone fell into the lion's den, and they survived. You'd be like, wow, that's pretty crazy. That's cool. Like, how did that happen? I'm surprised they, they, were, uh, they were saved. But what if it also said, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau makes this decree to all nations. I issue a decree that every part of Canada must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of lions. Now if Justin Trudeau made that decree, you'd be far more shocked by that than some guy made it through the night in a lion's den. This is the real miracle of this story. God is working for the sake of his name among the nations. This is like a psalm of Darius here. In the end, the praise doesn't go to Daniel. It goes to Daniel's God. Daniel chapter 6 represents the end of the narrative portion of the book of Daniel. The rest goes on into amazing prophecy. The last verse uh, kind of wraps up in a bow the first half of the book saying Daniel prospered then during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Or again, depending on what you think the reign of Darius, that is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. In, in a sense, it doesn't really matter. But we have, a, we have an example here in Daniel of how to live faithfully in an antagonistic age. And we have an, examples of the faithfulness of God in the antagonistic age. So in my remaining time, let me just get a little bit practical with you guys. What do we learn in this story about faithful Christian living in an antagonistic age? Number one, our work in the secular marketplace can bring glory to God. Daniel wasn't on staff at a church. He didn't make his money 
by being employed by the synagogue, a church. Um, he wasn't a vocational missionary that raised support to go from Jerusalem to Babylon. He worked for the secular government. Perhaps it would have been easy for Daniel to just put in a shift, not take his work seriously. Um, but that wasn't Daniel. He was hardworking. He did things well, and he was noticed for it. Look at verse 3. Now Daniel was so, di so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. He was gifted at what he does. Earlier in, verse, or in chapter 5, the queen brings it up to Belshazzar in uh, 5 verse 11. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. The way that he's at work demonstrates that there's something about his God. He doesn't only have exceptional qualities, but he does. But he also has God working in him. And in the secular marketplace, that stands out and that makes a difference. So a really smart guy, exceptional qualities, the spirit of, the God, of, of God in him. How does God deploy him as a full-time pastor? No, puts him right in the secular workforce. In, wor in the work of God, there is no sacred and secular divide. God does not only call people to vocational ministry. God calls each and every one of you exactly where you are to be a light for him exactly where you are. It's not just pastors or missionaries who have a holy call of God on their life. Every single one of you has a holy call of God on your life to serve the living God where he has you. Doesn't matter if you work at a grocery store, you're an accountant, you're a stay-at-home mom, whatever it is, God has put you there to serve him for the good of the city. Daniel, he was, again, he was in the public sphere of government. He knew that God had called exiles in Jerusalem to work for the good of the pagan city of Babylon. Some of, one of our favorite verses that we love so much is Jeremiah 29, 11. Wonderful promise for, of God. But the most important verse for you today in Jeremiah 29 is not verse 11. It's verses 4 to 7. Daniel would have known this because he had Jeremiah's scroll. God has a purpose for his people living in exile in an antagonistic age. Jeremiah 29, verse 4 to 7. This is what it says. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those who I carried into exile from Jerusalem, Jerusalem to Babylon. And this is what he says to us today, living in exile in Hamilton. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there and do not decrease. And here it is for you if you just want one verse. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because, it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is the word of the Lord to you from Jeremiah 29. Seek the prosperity in your secular work. This is an amazing passage. God calls his people to work for the good of Babylon while in exile. Daniel just has such a well-rounded understanding of God's purpose for him. In his prayer, he looks to Jerusalem, even though it's in ruins, and says there's a promise there. But then in his day-to-day -day life, 
He works and serves the secular workforce for the peace and the prosperity of the city that he was carried away to. So what does this mean for us? Your work has meaning wherever God has called you to. God has called you to work for the prosperity of your city. Look with faith to, a whole, to the holy city that we're called to, but work in the place God has called you to. Think of Jesus. He spent more of his life working as a carpenter than he did in his years of public ministry. Jesus spent more time in the secular workforce than he did as a vocational minister. 15 to 20 years, let's say, as a carpenter. Three years, vocational ministry. With regards to work, most of you sitting in those chairs have more in common with Jesus and Daniel than I do. As a follower of Christ, follow the lead of Daniel and work well in your job. Be trustworthy. Be honest. Work for the good of your company. God sees this and it brings him honor and glory. The second item I would offer to you practically from this, from the life of Daniel, is that our habits in private prepare us for the tri trials of life. Let's look again at, at verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows were open toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. When Daniel heard of this degree, decree, again, he's not doing anything different than he had already been doing. He went home for lunch to his off, from his office to pray. He'd always done this. Daniel didn't start his prayer life as a result of his trial. He had already, he already had that in his life. Well, what about us? What are the spiritual disciplines that we have in our life that prepare us for whatever life throws at us. I read a book this past year um, that had a, an influence on me. It's called The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. In this book, uh, the author talks about something called a rule of life. A rule of life is just a pattern of habits that help your spiritual formation. It was developed in the monasteries of old, and so that's where his research comes from. But a rule of life, it's less about following rules. That's not what it is. But it's about forming healthy patterns in your life to make you the kind of person you want to be. Not just about saying, I'm going to be a Christian and then hoping that it happens. It's actually putting structure in your life so that it does happen. The word rule actually comes from the Latin word regula, which is associated with the idea of a trellis. So any gardeners out there, you know that the trellis you put up so that the vine grows on it. The vine doesn't grow as healthy if there's no trellis there holding it up. And so the idea is that we need to put some rules or habits in our life that will allow our spiritual life to actually grow intentionally. Because whether we like it or not, our habits form us. The only question is, what habits are forming us? Are they intentional habits that we're putting in place, or are they the habits just that happen haphazardly? Take, for instance, what happens often, I'm guessing, for many of us when we wake up in the morning. So we wake up, and if you're anything like me, what's the first thing you're tempted to do? I might be the only one, but, but grab your phone, right? 
And it might be because you've got good intentions. Oh, I just want to see what time it is. Did I wake up on time? Maybe it's because you want to check the weather. Well, should I wear a jacket or should I? So you've got good ideas, but then you hit the, the big uh, blue F, and then uh, you go to Instagram, and all of a sudden it's like you see someone posted something, and they say something political that you don't like, and then this person says something about this or that, and then all of a sudden it's like, I'm still in bed, and I'm in a foul mood to start my day. Our day, then, has been formed by our unwritten habit of checking our phone first thing. Our habits form us. Daniel had a rule of life, or he had a trellis structure, that said he would pray three times a day. We see that right in verse 10. And remember, where did he get it from? Perhaps I'm offering, even if he didn't, Daniel and David had this. David says, evening, morning, and noon, I cry out. They had the trellis structure in their life. I'm going to pray three times daily. It seems that Daniel perhaps adopted this idea. We need to be intentional with our habits because our habits shape us to who we are. Allow me for a moment to dig a bit deeper in here and offer some practical advice. So, what I'm going to share has actually changed how I live in this past year. So I'm hoping it'll change you as well. Another book I read was a book called Atomic Habits. This is by a Christian author, but it's a great book, a guy named James Clear. I learned a very simple yet helpful principle called habit stacking. Habit stacking. So the idea is there, you do all sorts of things every day without thinking about it. And so what habit stacking is saying is attach something to those habits that's intentional. Let me give you two examples that's helped me in this past year. Every day, fortunately for the people around me, I brush my teeth. I don't have to schedule it. An alarm doesn't go off in my pocket to say, Jamie, brush your teeth. I just do it. In fact, I do it at least twice daily, once in the morning, once in the evening. And so this past year, I've decided that whenever I brush my teeth, in the morning, I'm going to pray for Vanessa. And in the evening, when I brush my teeth, I'm going to pray for my boys. Now, all my life, or at least all my married life, I've wanted to pray regularly for my wife, right? Something that we know we should do if we're, if we're married. Pray for your spouse. But I just never got into the habit of doing it. Now that I attach it to brushing my teeth in the morning, I do it pretty much every day. I brush my teeth every day. Sometimes I forget to attach it. But for the most part, I'm praying regularly for my wife. And because I've attached evening brushing of teeth to praying for my children, I now pray for my children daily. I've always wanted to do it. A simple little thing has helped me put that in my life. Habit stacking. Attach a new habit to one you already do. The second success I've had in this past year was, whether I like it or not, I have to walk the dog in the morning. You know, in the summer it's not that bad. It's starting to get a little cold, um, and I'll look forward to it a little less, or a lot less. But anyways, there's no day that I can get out of this. I have to walk the dog in the morning. Fifteen minutes, usually. So what I decided to do is that I'll, every morning as I go out with the dog, I'll put my AirPods in, and I'll listen to the Bible. And I've done that for almost the whole year now, that I've done that attached listening to the Bible with walking the dog. You know, everyone always wants to say, you know, I've gone through the whole Bible in a year, but it's just best intentions. You know, you start in Genesis, you're going strong. Exodus, the second half of Exodus, like, oh, this is getting tougher. And then in Leviticus, and it's just like, yeah. It's, it's, it's difficult. But attaching it to something I've already been doing, I'll now go through the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, just from listening to it, 
in the morning. And now I've also started my day within the first hour, spent 15 minutes with the Lord and his word. Two very simple things that everyone can do. And now I daily and consistently pray for my wife and kids and also listen to the Bible daily such that I will hear all of God's word in a year. Simple habits can transform your life. What's something that you do every day without thinking about it that you could attach something to? You put on a pot of coffee in the morning, pray for your family. Your daily commute into work, instead of listening to the radio or whatever, listen to the Bible. Let it form your life. Or, or spend 15 minutes just in silence and solitude. Pack your kids' lunches every day. This is something that's just a pain in the butt. You have to do it if you're a parent with kids. Well, why not print out Psalm 46, put it on your fridge so that as you're making your kids' lunch, you can just look over and reference it. You will have that psalm memorized by doing something that you're already doing. Think about it. Probably if I asked each and every one of you, what's your most consistent prayer time? What's it attached to? When you eat, right? This isn't some over-spiritual thing that you're, well, I, <laughs> I eat. Well, I pray right before I eat. You are already habit-stacking. I'm just encouraging you to do that with a lot more things, and you'll see spiritual disciplines in your life start to grow. The possibilities are endless. You have so many things to do daily. Why not attach something spiritual to it and create healthy habits? And I hope even this week in your life groups or around your table, you'll talk about what, what's a habit I'm going to stack in this next week. So two, two ways we apply faithful living from Daniel. Our secular work has meaning, and our private ha habits shape us and form us so that we can face whatever trials come in our life. Quickly, before I end, two things about the faithfulness of God. The first thing there is that God works for the sake of his name among the nations. Let me ask you a difficult question here. Why does God save Daniel, but not save so many others? Think of the Roman persecution by Emperor Nero. Christians are getting mauled by wild beasts. They're being thrown into fires. God didn't save them. Why does God save Daniel and not them? Well, I'll offer my thoughts here based on the text. We don't know ultimately the mind of God. But in verse 16, Darius says to Daniel, as he's being thrown in, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. God's name and saving power is being put to the test. And in this instance, he chooses to glorify his name by saving Daniel. But, and what happens because of it? Well, I told, I told you earlier, it's not just that Darius sees this, but that he then makes a proclamation to the nations about the living God. Remember, Darius, just imagine this happening in our day, a secular king or a secular politician issuing a decree saying, everyone in every part of my kingdom must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. God turns hearts, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and the earth, and he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. The end result of Daniel being saved is not that Daniel's name is magnified, but that all nations and peoples from every language on earth hear that Daniel's God is worthy of praise and that he endures forever. Daniel 6 is a great commission passage. The ends of the earth receive a word from a pagan king that it's God who saves. 
In the case of Daniel, God worked by rescuing for the sake of his name. But that's not always how it goes, is it? As I've said, God doesn't always miraculously save. Hebrews 11 is a chapter of the Bible many of us know well. Great stories are told about Abel and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph. But then towards the end of the chapter, we learn about many unnamed saints who are not dramatically rescued by God. Hebrews 11, 35 to 38. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to the death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. Each one of these unnamed saints were used by God for the sake of his name among the nations. They were the ones that truly sang the words that we sang this morning. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Whether in life or in death, God is working for the sake of his name among the nations. Sometimes he receives the glory by a miraculous rescue, and sometimes he receives the glory as the saint is martyred, giving a real-life enactment of the Apostle Paul's words that says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whether in life or in death, God works for his name. God is always at work for his name among the nations so that every tribe, tongue, and nation would worship him. And there's one more key way we see our faithful God at work in Daniel 6. And it's this. God works by providing one greater than Daniel. God didn't send Daniel to save his people. Daniel simply lived his life faithfully in the place where God called him to. In the end, Daniel couldn't save himself. Look at verse 21. When Daniel was asked if his God saved him, this is how he responds. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouth of lions. And this way, this is the way we are like Daniel. We're in need of saving. We're never going to find ourselves likely in a den of lions, but we have an even greater issue, each and every one of us here, and that's the issue of sin in our life. Often when we look at this story, we read ourselves into it as Daniel, but we're really more like the conspirators, the satraps that were messing around. We're left to ourselves. We're prideful. We're jealous. We gossip. Left to our own standard of goodness, we wouldn't even measure up. And these are examples of what the Bible calls sin. We are all guilty. None of us even meets the level of righteousness of Daniel, let alone the righteousness of God. But the good news is that in his love, God, just like he sent an angel to save Daniel, sent his only son to save us. And in so many ways, this story here points to God's son. Just as the administrators and satraps conspired against Daniel, so the conspirators conspired against Jesus. Just as the conspirators could find no corruption in Daniel, so the Jewish council could find nothing wrong in Jesus. Just as Daniel was sentenced to death by breaking the law of the Medes and Persians, Jesus was sentenced to death by transgressing the law of the Jews, claiming to be the Son of God. 
Just as Daniel descended into a pit and had a stone rolled over to keep him in, Jesus was placed in a tomb and a stone was rolled in place to keep him in. And just like Daniel, who emerged from the pit victorious because he was not guilty of the crime that they said he committed, Jesus emerged victorious from the grave because he had no sin and death could not hold him. In the character of Daniel, we have many great attributes to imitate as we seek to live faithfully in an antagonistic age, but it's ultimately to Jesus that we look to save us from our sins and to give us the hope of a glorious future to come. So please, don't look at this story and say, I need to be more like Daniel so that God will approve of me. Look to Jesus and place your faith in him. Because for those who have placed their faith in Christ, God already looks on you with approval. It's Christ alone that this story points to and that we turn our eyes to. And so let's turn to him in prayer now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Daniel who lived faithfully in exile for points from his life that we can apply Lord, that he faithfully served in his secular environment to bring glory to you, and that he had habits in his life that were already set in place that allowed him to live faithfully when the trials of life came his way. Help us to have those things in our life as well. But we also thank you, God, that we see that you are faithful in this story to work for the sake of your name among the nations. May we be ready for whatever you call us to, to bring glory to you, whether in saving or in times of difficulty or in suffering. Lord, may we be found faithful, pointing people to you. And we thank you ultimately for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came, lived the life we couldn't live, and then died and was resurrected so that we could be made right with you. We look to Jesus now and we praise him. Amen. If you've uh, ever turned your eyes to Jesus, my prayer and my pleading would be that you would do that today. Um, talk to me or the person who brought you here after the service. I'd love to set up an appointment with me. I'd love to talk with you during the week. Um, but my prayer is that just we would have such an understanding, and especially for us here as believers, that you are approved by God in Christ. You have nothing to prove to him anymore. You don't have to dare to be a Daniel so that God will approve of you. You are already in Christ approved by God. But because of that, now let the love of Christ compel you to show that love to a city that desperately needs to see it and that he would work in you. Not to, again, to prove yourself to God, but to demonstrate his love for the good of our city. Amen.